I'm going to invite you to turn to the back middle portion of your worship guide, or in a moment, we'll read from our sermon scripture, uh, which is Psalm 73. I'm going to invite uh, Jim uh, Pupalapale uh, to the front. Jim is a, a friend of ours uh, who is living and working in Ottawa at Resurrection Church, which, which is the church where I trained at uh, before coming. Jim is engaged in a similar kind of process, pursuing pastoral ministry um, there. He's finished his, his, his uh, Master's of Divinity and, and all of that stuff, but he's, he's kind of considering what's next. It's very typical in our family of churches to invite young guys who are exploring the call to pastoral ministry opportunities to preach, give them a few reps. If we were in Ontario, another place where there was more of our churches, we'd probably see more of these guys kind of filtering in to, to, uh, to have an opportunity to preach. But we're really glad to have Jim here. I'm sure he'll share a little bit more of himself in a moment. You notice the text on the back is Psalm 73, and that's because in the summer, we take some time to look at the book of Psalms. Over the next couple of months, we'll kind of camp out in this book. If you're not familiar with the book of Psalms, it's the songbook of God's people. It's the melody for the faithful Christian life. They are 150 ways that God himself tells his people how they're to faithfully commune with him, Amid, of all, uh, amid all of life's uh, greatest highs and lowest lows. These songs, they've been used and treasured by God's people for millennia, and they've been used in both public worship and private worship. And so why should we as a church take every summer to meditate on some of these 150 songs and prayers? Why should we learn them and memorize them? We just uh, practice the, the, the practice of singing uh, one of the psalms. Well, for a couple of reasons. One, Martin Luther, the famous reformer, he called the Psalms a little Bible and a summary of the Old Testament. And so human authors, inspired by the Spirit, they describe with, with poetic beauty the depth and breadth of who God is, uh, what he's spoken, what he's done for us in history. And so through the Psalms, we get to know God better, his word and his works and what he's like. A uh, second reason is John Calvin called the Psalms an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. And so by praying and singing the Psalms, we actually get to know ourselves better, what makes us tick. So again, human authors, inspired by the Spirit, offer to the church these 150 prayers and songs which give voice to the everyday griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, and perplexities which God's people have always experienced. And so the Psalms teach us how to, how to voice these concerns, all that's happening in our lives in, in ever more faithful, mature, and surprising ways. God himself gives the book of Psalms to his people as a gift so we can trust in his goodness and live faithfully before him in all of life's ups and downs. If you turn to Psalm 73, either in, in your Bible or on the back middle portion, I'm going to read it, I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to invite Jim to share the word with us. So Psalm 73. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not troubled as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their heart overflows with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. 
They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who, per- who, those who are far from you will, shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Please bless Jim as he comes to open it up for us. Pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning, Christ Church. It's a great blessing and privilege to be with you this morning. I bring you greetings from your sister church in Ottawa. We love you very much and pray for you often. As you heard from Mike, my name is Jim, and I serve at Resurrection Church as a pastoral resident in the hopes of doing what Mike and Brittany have done here, church planting. And to see what God has done has been beautiful. To meet some of you yesterday and even this morning has been amazing. And to experience the Shanger hospitality and the love of the children has been a great blessing. And as we begin to walk through God's word, I ask that you'd bow your heads with me just once more. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you tell us with clarity that you are a God who's good. In the midst of our doubts, in the midst of our questions, you allow us to say those things to you, to come to you in it. And I pray that you would correct it, that you would allow us to see who you truly are right now as we reflect upon your word. Help me now, guard me from error, and fill me with your spirit, and allow your people to respond with faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If I were to ask you, what is the most doubted attribute of God, what would you say? What would you say? And it seems like an odd question, right? The most doubted attribute of God? Shouldn't I be asking you what is the most affirmed attribute of God? In the scriptures, we see that the people often doubted. The Bible is a book that gives us clarity of who God is, what he's done, what he's promised, and what he's commanded. But if you've been a reader of the Bible for any amount of time, you'd see that the people of God doubted who God was. They forgot 
what he had done and what he had promised, and they disobeyed his commandments. And the people doubted at many times. But what did they doubt most about God? What do we doubt most about God? Did they doubt that he was holy? Did they doubt that he was powerful? As we read the scriptures, that actually rarely happens. But what is most consistent from the beginning pages of the scriptures throughout it is that they doubted whether God was good. Adam and Eve, when they fell in the garden, they believed the lie that God was holding out on them. They believed that God somehow wasn't good and that, that they knew better. And if we're honest, we can think the same thing, that God may be holding out on us and that maybe he's not so good. When things aren't going well in our lives, relationally, physically, and financially, we ponder this all the more. Is God really good? And if you're there today, God has something for you. If you've been there as I've been there, God has something for you today. But if you have yet to ask this question, whether God is good, God's word prepares you today. And what we'll see in this passage is that God is good, but we don't see it. We need God to reveal it, and we need his help to believe it. And so if you look with me at Psalm 73, we'll walk through this passage. Again, our outline is this. God is good, we don't, but we don't see it. We need God to reveal it, and we need his help to believe it. So our first point is this. God is good, but we don't see it. Some of you actually might have had issue with my introduction. You would feel that you're thriving. Things in life are amazing. Why is he talking about me questioning whether God is good? And if that's, if that's where you find yourselves, that's amazing. But Asaph was the choir leader in the most prosperous time in Israel's history. He served as the choir leader under King David and even under a time under King Solomon. And he himself ponders this question even in prosperity, even in goodness. We are people that often question who God is. We are people that only see the part and not the whole. And so may God give us eyes to see today who he truly is. And I really hope that things are good and well with you. But even then, even when they are good, we are people who focus more on the negatives and the positives, with the issues than the solutions. We are critical and not constructive. And when we look at our world and our lives, our knee-jerk reaction is to hi highlight all the things that are going wrong all the ways that there is injustice. In, in all of this, what we see is that God is still good, but we don't see it. And this is where Asaph finds himself. Asaph begins this psalm with an acknowledgement of truth. God is good to those who are pure in heart, to those who are obedient to God. But the rest of the psalm is a wrestling with this very idea. He wonders, if this is true, if God is good to those who are pure in heart, why are the wicked prospering? He envies them, and he's wondering why God has given them what they have. In no way do I think that he is 
somehow wanting what they have, but he's questioning that they have been given what they have undeservingly. For the Old Testament Jewish person, prosperity was a measure of God's faithfulness to the individual or the group. It was given to those who obey him. If they did the right things, said the right things, then they would receive the right reward. It was linear. Obedience plus God equals success. And we can even read passages like this in the book of Joshua or in Deuteronomy, where if they obey God and love him, they'll be blessed. And if they don't, they'll be cursed. And what Asaph is experiencing here seems to be the opposite. The wicked are prospering and the godly are suffering. Some of you might look out into your world right now and wonder that. Shouldn't God bless us? We're doing the right things. But instead, it seems that those who hate God are receiving the blessing by the standards of success that exist in our hearts and our heads. They're wealthier than us. They're stronger than us. They're more powerful than us. And maybe as simply, the wicked are less lonely than us. And it makes us wonder why they are blessed and we are not. Does this mean that God has lied? Does this mean that the promises of Joshua are untrue? Shouldn't that mean that God should bless you and me for obeying him? What we'll see in this passage today that God gives us a category that we just don't naturally have. In this psalm and in books like, like Job, we see with clarity that God is still good and fair even when we don't have what we want. And naturally, what we think and how we equate things doesn't keep eternity in its balance. Instead, we are often focused on the here and now, but where God stands, he sees life in fullness. There's a whole realm of false beliefs that has told people that if they have enough faith, that God will bless them. If they obey him, they'll have all the right things. And if we don't do that, if we believe that, then we've believed a lie. What this psalm tells us is that that's not the case. Faithfulness to God is not automatically equal blessing. Or at least it's not blessing in the ways that we think of it. The wicked in this, cha- in this passage are proud and violent. Look at verse 6. They are foolish. Look at verse 7. They are oppressive. Look at verse 8. And they even mock and disregard God in verse 11. If people like this live without pangs, which is another word for sorrows, and they are fat and sleek, which means that they are healthy and strong, what would you wonder at this point? As you read this, doesn't it sound better to be wicked than it is to be pure? That the wicked are rich, healthy, and powerful? What's the point of obeying God? And this is where Asaph finds himself. He articulates his own experience with God as he is one that's stricken and rebuked all the day long. What does this mean? It means that he experienced trouble all day and was corrected by God every day. Does this seem fair? This is the question. From where Asaph sits, from his perspective, he thinks that this is unfair. 
It's like a kid who has a parent that's telling him to obey, but he sees kids, or he or she sees kids that are not doing what their parents have said. And instead, those kids are still getting all the right grades, even though they say things and do things they shouldn't. Everybody likes them. They get the nicest stuff. And they wonder, what's the point of obeying? What's implicit in this passage and in this example is that parents only discipline their own children. They, they might give warnings to people that are not their own, but they, dis- they, don't discipline, they don't discipline them. They leave them in many ways to their foolishness. And in no way do I say that your troubles that you're experiencing maybe right now is God's discipline. I don't know. But what I do know is that those who God is not disciplining are not his children. He leaves them to their foolishness because they are not his own. God's correction is part of his goodness. We, like children, don't see you the way that we should. And we should see that God's care for us is that we wouldn't desire sinful things. That we would instead believe, that we would not believe things that are false. And instead, he would correct us to believe what is true and live as that. Does that mean that we should somehow abandon obeying God? By no means. Does that mean that we should be upset that we get correction instead of cash? No. God, through a staff, shows us today that we are not seeing correctly That God is good, but we don't see it. And that we are struggling, even now, as I explain it, to see it. And this this is what leads us to our second point. God is good, but we need God to reveal it. The next set of verses opens up with Asaph speaking of the difficulty to understand why life is the way it is. If God is good, why are people that are not his still winning? What we struggle with in our perspective is what Asaph struggles with. We only have our perspective. We only see things from our vantage point. And when we do that, we ultimately discount what God is doing. We think that he is not working or that he will not work. And so Asaph gets clarity from the one that can only give clarity, God. He enters the sanctuary God, which is the synonym to God's presence. He enters God's presence and begins to understand what's going on. And specifically, he discerns their end. He finds out where they'll end up. We, like Asaph, get so caught up in the present, we forget about God's future. It is as though Asaph had these few puzzle pieces, but didn't have the final image. He would have understood, and if you've, he had these few puzzle pieces and he didn't have the final image. If you've ever done a puzzle and you've sat there without knowing what the final result is, it, you know that it's close to impossible. But the image that Asaph does see are just a picture of the wicked winning and the godly losing. But God comes to him and gives him the picture with fullness. He gives him all the pieces, and he sees that God wins, and the wicked lose. Asaph goes on further, and he gets clarity. He's like, no longer is he the one that's slipping and falling. It's the wicked. By a moment, 
they will be in misery. And these verses tell us that they're going to be destroyed within a moment. He likens their lives to a dream that seemed to have a rude awakening. Though they thought where they were was a great place, the prosperity that they experience is just a consolation for the fact that they will have nothing in eternity. Though God may be a father to not though God may not be father to all people, he is the judge over all. He is the one that will right every wrong. He is the one that sees all injustice and sin and will not let it be unaddressed. And if your heart longs for justice today, know that God is not done. Know what we see is but a dream and that not only will we be awakened to this truth, but those who disobey him will as well. And his judgment will be far, le- far worse than poverty, hunger, or sickness, though those are horrible. God's judgment for their sin will be an experience of death, damnation, and final separation from God. The Bible describes this eternal punishment as a lake of fire, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what hell is. And that's what the wicked will experience as a result of their sin. Where would you rather be? Would you rather have the rude awakening to, that, to your life? That your life is a lie? The heaven on earth that you experience is truly just a doorway to hell? The bliss you experience is but a dream? Or would you like to know that your life is difficult? but it's leading you to something something greater, a place where there's true riches, of true abundance, of true health, of true peace in their fullness. You may have some puzzle pieces of your own, and you're wondering, what is this? What is God doing? Bring them to God. Bring them to God like Asaph brought them. We are to bring our most difficult questions and concerns to God so that he may reorient us and give us clarity to what he's done. He's told us their end, and he's told us our own. And would this renew our minds with hope to know what is to become? We've seen that God is good, but we don't see it. That we need God to reveal it. And ultimately, we need his help to believe it. And this is our third point. God is good. We need his help to believe it. In these last few verses, they focus on what God's actions are and the results. If you were to read it, you see that God is the one who holds. It is God who guides. It is God who receives. It is God who strengthens. It is God who works and helps Asaph to correctly see his goodness. And it is God who ultimately helps him to believe it truly. Asaph left his own is like a beast before God. Without knowledge, he's living like a savage. And this is a picture of sin. Sin is often personified in Scripture as a beast. In Genesis 4, we see that Cain is told that sin is crouching at the door like a lion. And so the picture of Asaph that we get when he's in his envy is he's embodying his sin. 
But God did not leave him there. Instead, he extends grace to him as Asaph drew near to God. God drew, drew near to him. As he confessed his sins to God, God cleansed him of his unrighteousness. And in that, God helped him to believe. Like how we tame an animal, God takes him and makes him civil. He makes him to truly obey and to live rightly. But it moves further than that than just behavior modification. He gives him an inward change. God gives him faith. You might wonder, where did any of that take place in this passage? Asaph begins this psalm with telling us of his sin of envy. This is confession. Mike reminded us, what is confession? Confession is agreeing with God. Calling sin, sin. Evil, evil. Not by our standard, but by God's. And so if you're in your sin today, if you are far off from God today, God calls you to confess your sins to God and to trust in the work of Jesus Christ. The one who took on your sin and our sin, that we may be cleansed by his blood. You've heard of the judgment to come. And it, you can experience that in a moment's notice. But God can spare you of that. Because Christ also suffered for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. That, we might, that he might lead us to God. And if you have not put your faith in Christ today, you can do that. You can turn to him. That you may know true goodness. And if you've already known the goodness of God and his nearness, may he strengthen your heart today that you would rejoice in him, believing in his keeping, in the glory to come, in the fact that he is a refuge, that he's protecting and that he's leading you. May he help you to believe this today. You might see all that I've said and be like, yeah, I need, I need God to help me believe this. And for the person that's an unbeliever in this room, yeah, they need to trust in Christ that they would not experience hell. But for the believer, the, the things that I'm telling you seem so intangible. Jim, I have real problems. I have real troubles. And you're just telling me to remember that God is near me and that's going to reorient me? It sounds like nonsense. But it's not. They are intangible, yes, but these truths, if we believe them, give us hope in the midst of our trouble. And at the end of this passage, there are two hopes that we see most clearly. The hope of protection and the hope of glory. The hope of protection is knowing that God gives us safety in the midst of injustice, in the midst of trial, in the midst of trouble. He guards us and preserves us in the midst of it all. And secondly, he gives us the hope of glory. It's knowing that God wins, that we are to share in victory, that he is going to defeat and vanquish his enemies and bring us to glory. And this is taking place right now. God is not stopped. He is not halted. He is not just waiting to the end. He is actively seeking for his victory to come on earth. And we get to experience that here and now. But one day, 
we'll experience it in its fullness. The victory over sin and death in its fullness, that we'll experience the true goodness of God in its entirety. Like Asaph now, would we see that true goodness is not measured by a lack of pain or how prosperous we are? Instead, would we see that true goodness is known by our position before God, his plan, and his processes to come? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for these truths. Though it's difficult to understand with our vantage point, would you lead us to the sanctuary of God? that we would lay down our concerns and our questions, and that you would reorient us to see you for who you are, a good and merciful God who is just till the end. In Jesus' name, amen.